Hey wine lovers, as you probably know, First Bottle Wines has been sponsoring the show for a while now. I use First Bottle to find all the best deals on really high quality wines. They're carefully curated so you always know you're going to get a great bottle. They've got all your favorites, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sparkling, whatever you love. So go to firstbottlewines.com right now and use my code GOLDENWESTPOD. That's GOLDENWESTPOD. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and you'll have wine show up on your doorstep as soon as you know it. You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A coffee.com, and use our promo code golden west you'll get five dollars off your first purchase do it now while you're thinking about it and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it today in the show we have amanda mccrossan amanda is a sommelier media personality wine educator and creator and host of the instagram and youtube channel Som vivant she was formerly the wine director at press restaurant in napa valley and today she focuses her efforts on producing wine edutainment a mix between education and entertainment and digital media content for both consumers and professionals alike. She's been featured in many media outlets and publications, including Food Network, Wine Enthusiast, Food and Wine, and Wine Spectator, just to name a few. Enjoy my conversation with Amanda. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing is let's talk a little bit about about your background and how you got into wine, but first take us all the way back to the days of you living in New York before you came oh. to Napa. <laughs> yeah, well, New York, I, I went up to New York because my background was in theater, film and TV. I was actually a musical theater major. So I spent the better part of my life on the stage and in front of a camera. I guess I'm kind of back to that now, but in the in the interim, um, I went up to New York to pursue that career and got caught up in wine while I was working at a place called the Core Club. And there was this amazing sommelier who had worked at Liberty and he came and worked as our AGM there. And my whole life, it, you know, wine was sort of this like this thing that I couldn't really get a grasp on, mostly because my, you know, my parents weren't super into wine. I didn't live in a place that had a, a super uh, rich wine culture. And so going to New York, I, I don't know if you've ever lived there or been there, but New York, it sort of just lends itself to this, this dynamic um, desire. It just, it, it becomes a place 
where you want to be part of all of the rich culture and everything that's happening there. And so for me, wine was sort of this missing piece. Like I knew a lot about music. I knew a lot about stage. I knew a decent amount about food, but then wine was just a complete uh, empty space for me. And so Arnaud, who came to Core Club, I just started picking his brain and he was really, really sweet and, and sort of showed me the ropes. He started off by asking me a series of questions and said, come back tomorrow with the answers and we'll take it from there. And it was questions like, you know, what are the, what are the five Grand Cru's or what are the five first gross of Bordeaux? What are the Grand Cru's of Chablis? What's the most famous dessert wine in the world? And so I had to go home and I researched questions and we started from there and, and he was the one that was responsible for getting me enrolled in classes. And that is how I got into wine. He really introduced me to everyone and, and, and helped open a lot of doors for me. And, and slowly but surely I started shifting away from my career on the stage and into a career in wine. Yeah, it's so interesting. I heard you talk on another podcast about those questions, and immediately I went to Wikipedia to look up the first yeah. <laughs> five growths to uh, yeah. to see what they were. Like you said, that sometimes that's the best way to learn is to start is to start googling and 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 having someone to ask those questions, and then you actually do the research can mm-hmm. help a lot instead of someone just trying to give you answers. I think. That makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah. I, you know, I think in retrospect, it was a really smart way to go about it. I think initially I'd asked him what books to read or, you know, what to watch. And he was like, no, we're going to do it this way. And and now looking back on it, it was a really, to your point, it was a really smart way to do it because it forces you to go down the rabbit hole of not only what are the first five growths or yeah, first five growths, but what does that actually mean? What is a, what is a first growth and, and why is that important? And so you really had to do a lot of research, not only on, on what they were, but, but why they were relevant in the wine industry. Yeah. And let's transition to how you made it over to Napa <laughs> and what that looked like uh, as far as that transition. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking the other day, it's been exactly five years since I started thinking about moving to Napa. And I remember that moment in my life because I had been working at a really great restaurant called Richester Georgette, which is uh, unfortunately now closed. I ran their wine program for a little while. And it was a really sweet restaurant, a, a, a very focused wine list. Uh, so nothing more than a hundred or 150 selections, but re- you know, really just a great place to get started. And, and I, Jean-Luc Ledoux, uh, was, was the original consulting sommelier for that or consulting wine director for that restaurant. So I had him to, to work with a little bit, but I wanted to work with the team and I wanted to work with sommeliers. I wanted to work with a more dynamic wine list that had a little bit more breadth and depth and, at that time, there wasn't a lot happening in New York in the way of wine programs being developed. There was a few little things that were happening. Um, I had ended up applying to Gabrielle, which is Gabrielle Kruther's restaurant. He had worked at the Modern. And I got this sommelier position and I turned it down. And I was like, all right, well, if you're going to turn down that position, what does that mean? <laughs> Maybe it's time to leave New York. And so I had just on a whim applied for the wine director position at Bouchon in Napa and let a friend know in New York that I had applied for it. And she said, oh, you should really, you know, you should talk to some of my friends out there and, you know, maybe we can get you a, a you know, your resume pushed to the front of the line. So in doing that, her friend turned out to be Scott Brenner, who was the wine director at Press. And he said, that's great. 
but we're also looking for a sommelier and we think our wine program is better. So why don't you, uh, why don't you and I have a chat? So we talked on the phone. I remember it was like, it was May and late, late, late May. And we talked on the phone. He said, well, the best thing to do is going to be to fly out here and see how you like it. And at that point I had only been to Napa once. It was only for a few days. And so I flew to Napa I stayed with one of their friends, ironically, down the street from where I'm living now. And um, I went, I staged two nights. I spent a little time here. I went to lunch at Bouchon and I got in the plane. And, and the moment I got in the plane, I felt this, this moment of, I really can't wait to come back. And so I just sent an email to Scott and Kelly and I said, thank you so much for the opportunity to stage with you guys. I think I'd love to do this. They needed someone super fast. I'm ready to be here. I could be here as soon as July 15th. And so that was that was like early June. Um, my lease was expiring at the end of July in New York, which if you've ever knew, lived in New York, the timing of that is like trying to nail the situation. The lease situation in New York is a is a is a trying and difficult thing to do. Uh, so I felt really good about that. So I, I kind of nailed the timing and I said, great, you're hired. We'll see you in July. And um, the bartender that I was working with in New York, his mom owns the Cameo Cinema in St. Helena. And she offered to let me stay here temporarily. And then I ended up staying for forever because uh, I started dating her other son. So that's the, that's the okay. personal side of how I got to Napa. It was like five weeks total between the first first conversation and me living out here and getting the job. So it was super super fast and and really it was a it was a leap of faith. It was great timing. It was it was just what needed to happen. I guess I don't know. It, you know, there's really it's a serendipitous story, but there's really nothing much more than that. Other than I was single, the lease was running out, I needed a new job, and this seemed like a great opportunity. That's great. Yeah, I've been to, I've had the opportunity to eat at press and it was amazing. There's so much history there. Yeah, I don't think I, I, I don't think I recognized the magnitude of the wine program until I really started working with it. Like I knew that it was an all Napa Valley wine list. I knew I really wanted to work with Scott and Kelly. I, I fell in love with both of them really the moment I met them. But beyond that, I didn't really understand how important that wine list was and how important that restaurant was. and. I really didn't, I didn't realize the amount of connections that restaurant had to the wine world. Um, and, and truly, I mean, I, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but it, that really played very little into my decision-making other for no other reason than I just didn't, I didn't know, like I hadn't really experienced the restaurant. I sat down for dinner my second night that I staged. Kelly opened a bottle of 87's, uh, Joseph Swan Zinvindel, I think. And I was like, this is amazing. I want to be a part of this. This seems really cool. I don't know more than that. But um, but yeah, I think, you know, after working there for five years, it was an amazing place. And I was there in a moment that uh I mean, very few will get to taste the wines that we got to taste because it was still, it was, I won't say it's at it was at the peak, because that, you know, I'm sure there'll be there'll be many peaks. Um, but it was at a time when, you know, we were very, very deep in vintages. Uh, of most of the greats, so, you know, so we were going back to the fifties, we had full verticals of BV back to the fifties, full verticals of Inglenook back to the sixties, um, martinis, Krugs, uh, diamond Creek, you know, just in, in bountiful amounts. And right now, you know, it's really, really hard to find these wines in, in 
in the amount that we were finding them back then and, and with the provenance that we were able to uh, to find. So I was very fortunate to work at that restaurant when I did and, and have a lot of great memories. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the some job description and kind of career tra- <laughs> trajectory and the different types of I'll say labels or certain designations that you can get within the industry. So first, let's hear a little bit about you know, your training specifically, and then we can talk about some of the others. Yeah, I, you know, I think everyone has this perception of what a sommelier was, myself included. When I was growing up, a sommelier was an old French dude, um, <laughs> generally, you know, white, uh, who walked around in, in a suit and, you know, talked to people that had a lot of money. And that wasn't me growing up. So I was like, enjoy your life. Um, <laughs> so when I got to New York and I started talking to other sommeliers who didn't look like that, uh, that didn't want to talk to me, even though I only had, you know, $40 to spend in a bottle of wine, if that, um, that was a revelation. So that, you know, er- eradicating stereotypes from, from the get-go was really, really formative in my getting into the industry and understanding that there was one, more than one way to be a sommelier. And it was, you know, it was also at a time when like the Patrick Capiello's of the world that were, you know, running, running around restaurants and t-shirts and tattoos were also really prominent as well. So um, the, the stereotype and the mold that had been outfitted for a sommelier had very much been uh, starting to fade away. And so my training started with the American Sommelier Association, as I mentioned before, Arnaud, who had really been my mentor in those moments. He signed me up for classes with them. I went through their viticulture and vinification certification program, which was about a nine month, uh, very, very intensive uh, weekly class. And to this day, it was the hardest class and the hardest test I've ever taken. That includes every AP class that I took in high school, every crazy exam that I'd taken. Um, This test was comprehensive to say the least. So that was my my first sort of certification. And then I ended up sitting for the Court of Master Sommelier's level one exam and then the level two exam, maybe six months after that. I passed both. Um, you know, as far as certification levels and how you become a sommelier, there are many, many different paths. What a sommelier is is there's a lot of definitions, um, you know, outside of the stereotype conversation, you know, what a sommelier's job and role is, um, you know, to me, a sommelier is a steward of wine. Uh, sommelier is someone that recommends wine to people. It's someone that, uh, doesn't just know about wine. It's someone that maybe serves it or sells it, um, you know, is sort of that, that bridge between consumer and, and winemaker. So that can, I think, you know, these days that can manifest in a lot of different ways. But, you know, for me, the traditional or the sommelier is obviously the one in the restaurant. We're there to recommend wine, serve them and ensure that the experience is wonderful and, and hospitable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about how you navigate a wine list. And you've talked about this on other podcasts before, talking about trying to find out the range of the price that the people want to spend and doing that in a very <laughs> careful way, obviously, because no one likes to kind of talk about that. But it's helpful to have the, those parameters talking about kind of what style the person likes. So maybe a more restrained style or more kind of big, fruity, robust, but not asking it in that way, maybe asking, Mm -hmm. well, what type of brands do you like or what type of wines have you 
had in the past and even talking about, well, where, what hotel are you staying at or what type of restaurants mm-hmm. do you like going? And then trying to find out these clues. And that was really interesting. And so you've covered that already on a couple of podcasts. So let's kind of drill down a little bit deeper and, you know, hear some interesting stories just kind of around working <laughs> <the> floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think um, especially in a place like Napa Valley, guests are coming here with the expectation that they they're going to drink great wine. That's, that's going to happen. So for me, the key was always disarming them, um, making them feel comfortable right away and not throwing 20 questions at them. Like what's your favorite type of wine? Because you ask anybody, what's your favorite, whatever. And immediately they're going to clench up and go, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, you know, what if they judge me because my favorite wine is duck horn and they only like silver Oak, you know, I I think, (laughs) I think there's just, there's too much weighing on these, these questions. And so my goal is always to, to make it comfortable, you know? And so I would start with, you know, where are you visiting from or what hotel you're staying at, where have you visited? Um, you know, questions that they could directly answer that they didn't really have to think about. Um, so that the conversation kind of like a podcast, right? Like, you know, the conversation gets going right away. You start to feel a flow, you get a rhythm, you get a sense for the the other person. Um, and so to me, that was always far more important than, um, you know, do you like Tannin and a wine, right? I think you can, you can get there pretty quickly. Um, yeah, as far as like stories in the restaurant, I mean, I don't think there's an experience I haven't had in that restaurant, uh, or in any restaurant for that matter. Um, we, my favorite part about working at press is that it was, it was an all walks of life restaurant. So, you know, you would see everyone from like people that would require like a secret service detail and like, you know, four armed cars and bodyguards around them, like at all times to just like super hyper local people looking to just come in and have a glass of wine and like a salad at the bar. Um, So for me, like, you know, my best experiences were the all of the above. Um, I'm trying to think of like a really fun, crazy experience. Well, I'll tell you one of my favorite, favorite, favorite experiences. And this has nothing to do with how to select a wine restaurant. It's just one of my favorite stories. Um, So when I first started working at press about, six months into it, a guy named Robert Parker walked through the door. And Robert Parker, if that name sounds familiar, is familiar because his name is the one associated with those numbers that are associated with scores. So he was really the one that put the point system in place. So Robert Parker walks through the door at press, super nice guy, you know, friendly with everybody, um, comes in with some bottles. And I know that he's going to be sitting in the back room. And so before he goes in there, he comes over, he says, hello, he introduces himself to me. I don't know why to this day, um, maybe because he knew Kelly or <laughs> Scott or something and just saw that I had a wine key in my hand. And he was like, she looks like a psalm. We'll, we'll be friends. So um, he comes over and he says, uh, guess what I have? And he's like a kid. Like he, like this guy has been has been experiencing wine for decades. I mean, literally could not there. I don't think there is a more imper- important person on this planet when it comes to wine. Um, so he comes in and he's like really excited and I don't know, I think I can't imagine being at his age and having the experiences that he's had being excited about anything wine related to the, to this level. So he's like over the moon and he comes over and he's like, look what I have. And he pulls up this bottle and I recognize the label, but I don't recognize the contents of the bottle. And the label was screaming Eagle. And I was like, it's screaming, but it's not the right color and it's a white. And I 
had no idea. I don't know if you do either that Scream Eagle actually produces a white wine. Um, it's super rare. They really don't sell it. It's kind of like a in the nose sort of unicorn wine. He was like, I've never had it. Are you, have you ever had it? And I was like, no, Robert Parker, I have not ever had white Scream Eagle, but it sounds really awesome. And he goes, uh, yeah, we're going to crack it. Let's, um, why don't you come back and we'll, we'll try it together. So, you know, interesting. I, I'm like, okay. So, you know, we go in the, in the back room he, and, I, and I open the wine and he goes, grab a glass. Let's taste it. He was like, how exciting is this? And there I am in the back of press drinking white screaming Eagle for the first time ever with Robert Parker. And I don't know that I'll ever have a better story than that because who gets to drink the rarest of the rare wines with the guy that essentially made wine famous in the United States and has also never had the rarest of these rare wines. Um, so it was, it was a moment that I'll never forget. And, and I know that doesn't answer your question, but I, when I was thinking about great, no, things, that's, like, that's that a was like my answer. favorite story ever. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. That is, that is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I'm going to link an article here in the show notes called the million dollar nose, which was written in the year 2000 in Atlantic magazine, um, which profiles, uh, Robert Parker Jr. And uh, it was a really well written article and really cool. Um, and that article, that, that story you told is uh, really, really special. Yeah. Um, so moving on to as far as a few of the things that people might be curious about as far as how Psalms operate on the floor and things like that. One thing I always wondered was just kind of the whole presentation and kind of the uh, the tradition that goes along with opening a bottle. Um, and I've been told that one of the reasons or the main reason that you're offered a small taste is just to make sure the wine hasn't been corked. Um, but some people kind of look at that and, and think that they're <laughs> almost sampling the wine or something like that to see <laughs> if they like it. Yeah. What have you encountered with that? And is that true about testing the, the bottle to be corked. I know another way you can do is to smell the cork instead of taste the wine. So l- let's talk about that piece. Yeah. I, I hope you have some time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Okay. So I'll, I'll back up. So yes, traditionally the reason that a small two ounce to three ounce taste of the wine is poured for the guests prior to pouring out the bottle is for the guests to confirm what we call the soundness of the wine. So we want to make sure the wine is sound, i.e. free from from flaws. So that can be anything from TCA, so cork taint, to um, oxidation. So when a wine smells like port, but it's not port, um, a wine can, you know, there's a lot of flaws on wine can have. Those are the two primary ones. Sometimes um, a little too much Britannomyces or Brett in a wine can be very off-putting. And I think if, if a wine has not been marketed or sold that way and doesn't normally have Brett to the degree that you're smelling, perhaps that would be a reason to send it back. But it is an opportunity for the guest to sample the wine, but really to check to make sure it's sound. That is the traditional reason why we do it. That said, I think in a restaurant environment and specifically in a hospitality environment, there should be the opportunity, especially as as a transactional situation is happening because you've sold the bottle as a sommelier and the guest has to say, yes, I like this bottle. There should be a moment in which that guest says, yes, you've done your job. You have selected the right wine for my palate and for this dinner that I'm about to enjoy. Um, and so while traditionally the, the taste is only intended to ensure the accuracy or the soundness of the wine, really, I think, you know, it's sort of 
moved to an opportunity to say whether or not they like it, um, even though traditionally that's not the reason why we would do it. That mm-hmm. said, you know, at press, we taste every bottle. So to ensure that it's it's number one, it's sound and free from flaws, but two, also to see where it's at in its life, because wine, you know, as we know, is ever changing. It never really stops developing the way that it can taste one day is very different than how it can taste the next. And I'm actually doing a little um, series right now with a couple of friends who make a wine and, and, and watching that happen over the course of um, a month. So we're checking in on the wine every, every four weeks to see how it's evolving. And so what we'll do is check the wine and see, you know, does it need to be decanted? You know, is this a wine that should have more of a chill on it? You know, how is it drinking? And also to make sure that we've done our jobs because, you know, as much as we can recommend a wine and, and, sort of deduce or guess um, what what it's going to taste like based on past history. Uh, being a finance guy, past performance is not indicative of future results, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, there's a number of different reasons why we do that. You know, to me, tasting the wine as the sommelier, as the person who recommended it, really takes the pressure and the onus off of the guest, which is the most important part of the, the process. And so oftentimes, you know, when we have that guest check the wine for accuracy, I will just let them know, hey, you know, we did check the bottle and, and insured it. This is really just a formality. Um, and usually that takes the pressure off. Occasionally wine is sent back, but, um, you know, it's it's very rare. As far as smelling the cork, you can absolutely smell the cork, but there's actually very little that you can tell about a wine based on its cork. If it mm-hmm. reeks of TCA, mm-hmm. then it's fairly likely that that wine is corked. But I have had wines that um, the wine was actually unaffected, even though the cork was tainted. Usually it's because they just hadn't had enough time to have that sort of exchange. But, you know, when people look at, uh, seepage on a cork or, you know, the the condition of the cork, obviously we want a beautiful cork because that means that it's, it's done its job to protect the wine, but not all wines are subject to the same, uh, brutalities of the world that others are. So oxygen doesn't necessarily creep in in, in the way um, that it would for one wine into another. And so, you know, if you see a crumbly cork or you see that there's been a little seepage, um, if you see that the wine has sort of crept up the the cork into a three quarters, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the wine is is bad. It, it's not necessarily indicative of how it's going to taste. Um, sometimes it can give you a little bit of a premonition, but you know, you shouldn't just look at look at that cork and write it off. We've had really beautiful experiences with wines with terrible corks and and vice versa. That makes a lot of sense. Now, when you're looking as far as decanting wines, let's talk a little bit about that. So I know for an older wine, generally speaking, from what I've heard, it's it's about the sediment and that you want the settlement to kind of settle and then, you know, pour it in a kind of way that's pretty quickly. So you're, mm-hmm. I've even seen some content about holding a candle under it to, to see the sediment. And then when you're looking at a, a a very young wine, being able to kind of just let it breathe and open up can can help it. Now, I was listening to Antonio Galoni on a webcast recently, and he had mentioned at this stage in his life and kind of where he is, he's more apt to decant a white wine than even a red one, uh, which was <laughs> kind of surprising to me. So talk about this and uh, what I got wrong there. Yeah, it's a it's a subject that is uh, that is debated far and wide. Uh, you know, I think Galoni 
yes, you can decant a white wine. And I think there are many circumstances in which that makes a lot of sense. Um, decanting, unfortunately, is one of those things where there is no prescription that works in every situation, mostly just because there's just too many variables. But if you if you isolate the categories as to why one would decant and you assign them, you break them into, into two different brackets, one is going to be decant for sediment which is what you expressed before. And the other is going to be decant for air. And so when you're decanting, you have to understand what it is you're after and what you want the result of that decanting process to be. So if you are to decant purely for sediment, then yes, you're going to decant very, very gently, ideally into a, a vessel that is going to be a little smaller, that isn't going to subject the wine to too much oxygen too quickly because it can push the wine and and make it sort of fall apart very quickly. Um, generally speaking at press, like we never really decanted for sediment unless we absolutely had to. So we would use what was called a wine cradle. And so when that wine would be removed from the cellar, it would be removed, removed at a horizontal angle. So it was laid flat at 180. And then it would go into a little wine cradle, which left it at about uh, 30 to 45 degrees. I can't remember exactly. So that it was just slightly um, just slightly up uh, so that you could see the label, but it was still flat. So the sediment didn't rush to the top and start commingling with the wine. So we never really decanted for sediment. And there's a lot of restaurants that work with older wines that will not decant for sediment and instead just allow the wine to live in cradle. You open it in cradle and, and you know, to try to paint a picture for you, um, you know, think of like a basket or like a, oh, like a, a like it's literally a cradle. It's a, like a leather um a leather sling uh, mm -hmm. that the wine would sit in. You take the cork out and then you try to keep that wine as horizontal as you can. And you're essentially decanting without decanting. So you're pouring very gently into the glass, trying to keep the sediment towards the bottom and only, only disperse the liquid into the glasses. Um, when you're decanting for air, that's a whole different ballgame. And that is probably one of the most widely debated topics because I don't believe that all wines need to be decanted for air. I think that there can be a lot of damage done to a red wine, especially a young red wine, if you mm -hmm. decant it too much too soon. Uh, and it can push the wine into a, into a territory where some of the, the volatiles from the alcohol start to escape and push towards the center of the glass. Um, and not to get super, super geeky, but you know, it becomes a situation where the wine sort of gets discombobulated, right? Like all of the yeah. beautiful freshness, the youth, the fruit of that wine starts to give way to some of these ethers that pop up through the center. And while you might decant uh, to open some of these, some of the the compounds that exist in the wine and soften the tannins, you know, I think there's a lot that that you can miss in the process. So I am I am very conservative when it comes to decanting. I am not someone that just, you know, I open a wine, I see that it's a 2016, I'm like, oh, we're going to decant this right away. I actually really love to see how the wine evolves in a glass. I know a lot of sommeliers do too, but sometimes the tannins can be really, really structured, really firm, and air can really help to break that down and soften it up. Um, just know that you might lose a little bit in the process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as far as kind of softening the tannins a bit. I was reading a blog the other day and the person was talking about decanting a certain wine to have kind of mellow out the alcohol and kind of have the alcohol 
quote, burn off this person was talking about. Is is there any truth to that? Or when I was reading it, I wasn't quite sure if that was even like a thing. No, uh, I've never heard that. I don't know that to be true. I've never read that. Um, And I would say from from past experience, the alcohol, the alcohol never really burnt. You don't, you can't burn off alcohol unless you're like cooking right. well, it. That's, that's what um, I, was, I was thinking. So if I, any, I wanted to ask the aspect. Yeah, no, I say if, if anything, you know, decanting actually can sometimes, like, like I said, that can push the alcohol to, um, to be to the front of your nose. Like those alcohol ethers are really, really strong. So it's going to want to like, just push straight to the center of the glass. So, um, no, I, I, that is a, a, a wild thing to say. And I, um, I, you know, I, I, I have been proven wrong before, but I have never heard such a thing. And it has not been in my experience that decanting will soften the alcohol. Um, that is, oh, that is Trace Interessante. I don't know. <laughs> I've never right. heard that. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, um, well, no, this is important for people to, obviously you can read so many things online and there's yeah. <laughs> everyone has an opinion and everyone's an there's, there's exactly everyone's an expert. <laughs> and uh, that's why it's important to seek out experts. And you obviously have you, your YouTube videos and, and content and more content on the way, which we'll get to a little bit later, but that's why I think it is important for people to kind of seek out the experts, especially with, with wine because it's very nuanced and there's a lot of details. So the last thing here just to touch on is you told a really interesting story about how you on a previous podcast about how you poured a customer a wine and they didn't like it at first. And then you put it in a different glass and then they said, Oh yeah, this is uh, I like this. (laughs) So let's talk about how the glass affects the, the nose affects the taste and then the difference between like the reality of that and then maybe psychological things as well. Mm, yeah, well, actually, um, yeah, I've done that a few times for guests, probably most notably, and probably the one that you're speaking of. And I don't know if I mentioned it was him, but this was uh, actually something that I did for James Suckling when he was in, who's an, another notable oh, wine wow. critic. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think it was the Desante that I had poured, the Desante Old Vines White Blend. So it's this field blend of... God, everything from uh, Golden Chasselas, Semillon, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Vert. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing a few, um, but it was it was a wine that we poured by the glass fairly regularly. It's a really really unusual wine, obviously coming from uh, Saint Helena, which you you don't see wines like this very often. But I find, especially with white wine, well, not with red wines too, but um, white wines, especially blends like these. There are moments in a wine's life in which things want to be the star. And then there are moments when that star decides that they want to take a backseat. And so, you know, this, this glass situation, I was, you know, I was pretty skeptical before I started working with Scott and Kelly. Scott was really the one that, that opened my eyes to what a glass can do for a wine. It is not psychological. It really does affect things. Um, and it affects things for a couple different reasons. And, you know, you could, you could do a podcast with like Max Riedel and I'm sure he'd break it down for you in a very scientific and, and, um, uh, a more, uh, educated way, but on a very elementary level, you've got to think about two things. One is the aromatics. And then the other is where that wine is actually hitting on your palate. And there is a, different glasses will allow will different glasses will 
push the wine to different places in your mouth. So if we start first with the aromatics, obviously, you know, the wider the glass, the more aromatic the wine is probably going to be. So you're, you've got more surface area for that wine to, um, to do something, but it can also mean, like we talked about before, that things that you don't want to come out of the wine will start to peak out, you know, whether that's, um, you know, weird esters or whether that's like alcohol or, you know, just a, a, a something that's a little bit off and it's hiding or masking something else that really wants to take center stage. And so if you think about wine uh, from a, a tasting perspective, you're really smelling the wine first, whether you want to or not. And, and your sense is really 80, per, your smelling sense is really 80% of the tasting experience. And I think those numbers can be um, inflated or deflated depending on who you're talking to. But you have to take into account how that wine is going to smell and what the aromatics are going to do as it pertains to taste. So wine can dramatically change in a glass, but just based on how much surface area there is for you to smell it and, and what's what you're allowed to smell before it even hits your mouth. Once it hits your mouth, um, you know, where that where that wine, the shape of that glass forces that wine to hit on your tongue can also change how that wine sort of dances in the palate and, and where your taste buds or receptors are, uh, are, are grabbing onto. Um, so glasses can change a wine very, very dramatically. Um, I think what I had done in that instance was I, um, again, at a very elementary level, I took the wine from a burgundy glass, so a very wide glass with a lot of surface area, and I put it into a smaller glass that you would use for, say, like a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and that really focused and concentrated the wine. And it sort of, it sort of, um, forced all of the great freshness, the Sauvignon Blanc characteristics, the Sauvignon Vert characteristics that it forced it front and center and kind of forced the, some of the, the Chardonnay or, um, you know, the rounder, uh, tasting grapes, so to speak, it sort of forced them into the background and it just, they were just there to support. So instead of having, you know, all of the instruments play at once, now all of a sudden you're just hearing the violin with just a gentle background of percussion, right? Um, and so that's really what a, a glass can do and it can focus on wine, it can strengthen, it can, it can decrease. And, and I think, you know, if you're a sommelier and you, you really know your wines and you really want to experiment with different things. And especially if you're in a situation where, you know, maybe you only have five whites by the glass or three whites by the glass and, and you've got a customer that, um, says, you know, I, I really want this to be more steely, more angular. You can use glasses to sort of manipulate the wine and, and have, force a different experience from the guests. And I think that's what happened with James. He really wanted something that was a little more fresh and zippy. And so the wine was presenting more in a Chardonnay round style uh, when I had it in a Burgundy and uh, more fresh and zippy in the white wine glass. And I'm sure there is an element of psychology that you know, tricks the brain into thinking that as well. But I will say I have done this enough times with both red, white, rosé, every champagne. Um, and it really does change how you how you taste a wine. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And the way you described it, it does make a lot of sense. Um, let's talk a little bit about individual bottles. So there's so many that we could probably cover, but we'll just <laughs> touch on a few here. So let's look at the oldest first on my list of uh, some of the notes I took based on some of your podcasts and articles here. So the 1972 BV, is it Georges Latour? Uh, George, Latour? Yeah, Georges Latour. And um, you talked about it being one of the great life discoveries uh, among um, older Napa Valley cabs. So let's talk a little bit about that specific wine and what made you so intrigued by it. Yeah. Um, so so BV, uh, specifically the Georges de la Tour, that was sort of their tête de cuvée. That was something that that they still make uh, in honor of their founder, Georges de la Tour. 
Um, Andre Telechev was really the godfather of, of American modern winemaking in Napa Valley. If you look at, uh, if you were to create like a family tree of winemakers, it would start with Andre Telechev and work down from there. And he's really, I've actually done this before and it's really interesting to see. Um, you know, he, he was responsible. He was brought over, I think by George Latour, um, to, after prohibition, there was a lot of crappy winemaking and there was a lot of, um, it wasn't sterile. There was just a a lot of bad behavior. And so they were starting to get, BV had already been producing wine. They were starting to get a reputation for for making bad wine. And so he brought over Andrei Telechev, um, who really brought over these these winemaking techniques from Europe and and implemented them at BV. And from there, it was sort of a sharing economy between between winemakers. And so Andre was re- is responsible for so many things in Napa Valley as it pertains to winemaking. Um, the 72 specifically was a vintage that he would have still been around for. I don't think that he had finished that wine, but uh, 72 super unctuous wine, you know, really ripe, um, you know, a vintage that probably isn't one of the flashier of vintages of the 70s, 74 and 78 were really the two like hallmark years of that decade. But the 72 always seemed a little bit understated. Um, it seems like a wine that still had great viscosity. So there was like an oiliness to it. Um, but then it had these really beautiful florals and they were sourcing from a few different vineyards back then. Um, I can't think of any, um, I, I don't think there was I don't think it was single vineyard at any time. Um, but in 72, you know, you would have had mostly Valley floor fruit. Um, so you get this richness and this ripeness. Uh, but then there's also just this gentle restraint. Um, and it was just the perfect bottle of 70s Napa Valley wine in a style that is not as rustic as that of um, something like Diamond Creek or Heights or um, even Ingle Nook at the time, you know, BV, Charles Krug, Louis Martini, those guys were making wines in a style that was very modern for their time and very advanced. Um, and I think the 72 is just a really beautiful, beautiful representation of that. Right. And let's move to the 91 Dominus. Oh, by break, Chris break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> And Dominus has had at least a few winemakers that I I know of. You can you can fill in the gaps here, but um, I know Melka was involved early on. Um, there's there's others as well, but let's talk about this particular one. Yeah. So Chris was actually um, we'll call him the original winemaker. So he joined in 1983, uh, which I believe was the first vintage. He had worked okay. for them for the Moyax family in Bordeaux for a, a vintage. Um, in 1982, a very famous Bordeaux vintage, and then came back to Napa Valley. Uh, Christian offered him the job. Chris tells the story that Christian offered him the job, and he said, I'm not ready. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing yet. And mm-hmm. so he essentially took like a year to sort some things out. And then I think he was like boots on the ground in 1984. And so Chris was the winemaker there from 1984 until 1995. Um, they were making the wine. The, the Dominus estate was not built yet. So they were making the wine, I believe, over at what is now Rombauer, which is a custom crush facility at the time. They may have been making it at another custom crush facility as well. Um, but the 1991 vintage, I don't, fully understand why that wine tastes the way it does. I don't know. I don't think Chris really does either. And he's super proud of that wine. Um, and, you know, Chris is a, is a great friend, as is his son, Josh. And we've had many conversations about this. I know it's Christian's favorite wine as well. Um, there is something about the, the 91 that is just 
remarkable and it doesn't make sense in it. And it's, I won't say it's that much of an outlier because I love all of the Dominus wines. And I think there is still like figuring a few things out here and there. So some vintages are, are, are riddled with Brett. Some are really clean. Some are more rustic, but there's something about the 91 in particular. Um, and I don't know if they just hit a sweet spot with the vines, with the winemaking, whatever it is, but it is a perfect, perfect singular expression of a vintage, of a wine, of an era. Um, it is deep and concentrated, but there is restraint, there's muscle, but there's elegance. Uh, it is, it has a finish that just goes for like days. Um, I mean, truly it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are like, eh, like, you know, either on the fence about Dominus or really love Dominus. And, and those that are on the fence that have the 91 are generally convinced that like, this is a spectacular, spectacular wine. Um, there's no real reason for it. 91, it was a good vintage. It's not a remarkable vintage by any means, but for some reason, this wine just is, you know, you can see it in the price. They're twice the price of any other Dominus from that era. Um, and it is, it's remarkable. I mean, there's really no other word to describe it other than you just kind of have to taste it. And when you throw it up against other grapes, like the 74 Heights Marthas, the 1978 Phelps, Isley, um, you know, anything uh, that is considered a unicorn of its time or, you know, just a great wine of its time, you throw the 91 Dominus at it. And I promise you it has a seat at the table and often will outshine the others. Really interesting. Now let's move on to the last one here, which is a brand called Calder um, by Rory Williams, who <laughs> is the son of John Williams from Frog's Leap. And he's doing some really interesting things with varietals that are other than Cabernet and shining some light on some really interesting things. So let's talk about uh, just the brand and in general and the things you like about what they're doing there. Yeah. So I, I, well, I'll start by saying I'm a huge fan of Frog's Leap and everything John Williams has done and is continuing to do. I think they have done so many great things for the Valley. They have uh, in many ways flown under the radar, but have also been able to, you know, be a brand that speaks to a lot of people at a lot of different drinking levels. So it's, you know, it says as great a wine for someone that's shopping in their local grocery store to find the Sauvignon Blanc in Zinfandel as it is for, you know, a great collector. And to go back to these like 80s vintages, early 90s vintages of Frog's Leap, what they were doing was just ahead of their time. I mean, they were really some of the first people to believe in organic farming. They were the first to believe in dry farming. Um, I think they're even moving towards a place where they're going to be start starting to look at uh, no-tilling and regenerative farming. So, you know, not, they've, they've always been a family that understands it's farming first and less is often more. And so that's really been instilled in John's son, Rory. And so the Calder brand is in many ways, representative of the family's identity as it pertains to Frog's Leap. But it's also a wine that's got its own identity in the sense that it it it's an outlier. It focuses on varieties like Charbono, which is this um, sort of forgotten grape of Napa Valley. It used to, used to be very, very prevalent back uh, 60s, 70s, even before that. Um, you know, you can find really early bottlings of Inglenook Charbono. Um, Interesting. EV did one. It's also known as Bernarda, which is in uh, Argentina and is often blended with Malbec. But there has been a bit of a resurgence of the grape as of the last few years, courtesy of, of Rory 
Matt Morris uh, is another big lover of Charbonneau. His his entire label is nothing but Charbonneau and an homage to Bonarda uh, with a little blend of um, Malbec in it. But Rory's brand is young. It's fresh. Um, you know, he does Riesling, he does Charbonneau. And to me, you know, he's our next generation of, of vintners and farmers. He's who will steward the land in a way that I think is um, really important. And he's championing other varieties, which I think is also really important because Napa Valley is very much a monoculture in the sense that we're, we're growing grapes and, and that's most of the agriculture that's, uh, that's planted around here. But we, you know, we, as much as we are a, a Cabernet land, I think it's important to champion other varieties and, and make this place interesting. One of the great things about growing grapes and making wine in the United States is that we don't have to adhere to a system like they do in, in Europe. I mean, we don't have to just plant Pinot Noir in Burgundy for it to be called Burgundy, right? Like you can plant whatever you want. And as long as it's yeah. in that appellation, you can call it Rutherford Chasselas, right? If you've got it and you planted it there, like you can do whatever you want. And so I think there is a freedom and a flexibility that I don't think has been um, fully capitalized on, or at least recognized in, in the way that I think is it should be. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, Cabernet will, will not be king of Napa Valley. I think it absolutely will. And I, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Um, but, you know, I think there's opportunity for other grapes. And I, I love that people like Rory and his brand Calder are really leading that charge and, and doing these amazing things and, and making great wines. I mean, these are not these are not hipster natty wines that are made uh, <laughs> with uh, by just leaving it out in this. I, I'm totally generalizing. I'm going to get so much shit for this, but um, you know, these aren't wines that are, you know, we're picking the grapes, we're letting them sit and hoping the wine makes themselves like these are, you know, quality wines that are made by someone that really cares. And, um, you know, as much as he's about minimal intervention is going to make sure that the wine is free from any sort of flaw, like bread or, or volatiles or, um, too much reduction or whatever. So I, I respect him immensely and I love those wines and they're also very reasonably priced, which I appreciate as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that transitions into the next topic here, which, you know, frog sleep is a really great example of the, like you mentioned, dry farming and organic going back to, was it the eighties even? Yeah. And then we've seen, we talked about Parker and we've seen the, in the nineties, you know, these big, bold cabs and most people kind of know that story. And now we've seen the pendulum swing a little bit, at least into the other direction with this resurgence of natural winemakers. <laughs> and like you said, there's, there's a, a big spectrum there where some have zero inter intervention. Maybe they add a little bit of sulfites, uh, sulfur at the end. Um, and, and sometimes not even that, but there's been this kind of resurgence of this minimal intervention kind of style. Um, so let's t let's talk about that and the different facets there, how you look at those two camps. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you need to break it down into just two separate categories. I think there can be elements mm -hmm. of, of both that can be that you can use um, either judiciously or um, in small quantities and I think they're, you know, I think they're both valid to a certain degree. It's just, you know, you've, as a winemaker, you know, you, you're, you're your own chef in the kitchen. You've got your ingredients and it's your job to make something delicious. Um, hopefully that will sell or that you personally will want to drink if it doesn't sell. Right. And I think it's going to be really interesting for you as, as you embark on this, this adventure, making, making wine and, and being an intern in for harvest, um, 
to see where all of the different variables can lie and what some of these terms mean. And I say that because two years ago, I had the opportunity to make my own wine. And I think before that, I had my own feelings about you know minimal intervention and, and what techniques should and should not be used in a winery and why we do certain things. Um, and then you go and you make your own wine and you see, you watch the process and you're like, wow, there's a lot that can happen and there's a lot that can go wrong. And there's a lot of reasons for why we do things. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a winemaker, so I'm not going to sit here and tell anyone how they should make their wine. What I will say is the outcome is obviously the most important because it's, you know, how is it going to drink in the glass? And I think for me as a professional, it's important to know how wines are made because that, that informs me, um, as far as the ageability of the wine, as far as which consumers are going to like the wine, but as far as like what you choose to do in the winery is your business. If you choose to leave those grapes out in the sun and you choose not to add sulfur and you choose to just let them like hop out of the basket themselves and make their own juice, then like that's on you. And if it tastes good at the end of the day, then great. But if you're someone that's like, no, I want to add 50 things to this wine and it's going to be delicious. And um, obviously I'm not someone that is, is championing like, you know, heavy use of mega purple and, and grape concentrate. But like, you know, if there mm-hmm. are tools <laughs> that you need to use and it's going to make a delicious wine, great, do it. I'm, you know, again, like going back to that freedom and flexibility thing, we're not living in Germany. You can shaftalize your damn wine if you want to. You can bring it up in alcohol. You can water it back. You can do all of these things. And I think, you know, I think as a winemaker, that's your prerogative. It's my job to decide whether or not that tastes good and whether or not I want to sell it. Um, So I don't have any strong feelings as far as like what camp someone's in. I just want the product to be delicious. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about the spectrum there and that transition from Roy Williams wine about how he's using a certain type of different types of grapes, as you mentioned, that are not cab, um, which sometimes are associated with more of the natural winemakers. But as you mentioned, he's he's making it in maybe a little bit more traditional style, even though as opposed to the the hardcore natural winemakers, but still using techniques that are minimal intervention and, and different things like that. So that's also kind of clouds the conversation a little bit, I think, when some people kind of look at it. Another thing to mention is for people who haven't heard about it, they can read about the IPOB, which is the In In Pursuit of Balance group, which uh, did shut down, but it was a group started by (laughs) Jasmine Hirsch and Raj Parr. So now, now, now it's a very controversial topic, I know, to talk about sometimes. This group was was created to kind of try to swing the pendulum in the other direction. One interesting thing I think though that someone brought up to me is they've tasted you know natural wines that are out of balance or you know, wine that's just way way too low alcohol or just you know there's no fruit there. And then you could look at the other side of the spectrum though, which is the the big bold cabs and the you know huge way too much alcohol. But I think that when you talk about balance, you could talk about it with with both styles. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, gosh, the I, you you know that implicit balance thing. I think it 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 took on a life of its own. I don't think Jasmine or Raj expected that to become as big as it did. And I I think to some degree, you know, it 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 resulted in something that was more detrimental than good, which was never the intent. The intent was to shed light yeah. on balance um, right. and what balance means and and 
noting that balance is a is a respective and and subjective term, right? So like balance can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But just noting that like balance in the glass and whatever that that means and how that presents to you is what you know we should be after. And I think it was important because it really lent itself to an understanding of um, how we taste wine and how wine is made and, and brought winemakers and sommeliers together in a way that maybe they hadn't before. I don't you know. It's, it was slightly ahead of my time. So I can't really speak to the to the actual movement as it was in progress. Um, but the aftermath of it, I mean, we saw, you know, a, a wide array of different styles and shifts. Um, you know, what balance means to me is different than what balance means to somebody else. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't think, I think there's room for everything. And I think that, you know, am I someone that wants balance in my glass? Absolutely. But do I know that there's people out there that want big ostentations ostentatious wines. Yeah. I mean, for sure, like the bigger, the better. And I think there's a place for those too. I do think to your earlier point that, that the pendulum in Napa Valley is swinging slightly back. You know, we saw a real push for alcohol and even residual sugar, um, all the way up through 2013. And it seems as of like 16, 17, that pendulum is starting to shift back. You're not seeing as much addition of like concentrated mega purple. Um, you are starting to see a demand from consumers to have a little bit more transparency as far as what's going into the bottle. So, you know, I think right now, you know, we, we, God, we, I dare I get into the millennial topic of like who's drinking wine, but I do think that as, as the millennials come of age um, and you know start to become a real dent in the uh, in the wine buying sector, I do think that's something that winemakers will have to pay attention to if you know if they want to make wines that are consumer friendly. Now, if you are someone like Philippe Tony that's been making your wine the same way for three four decades, no, you're not going to change the damn thing. But if you are Duckhorn or if you are Kendall Jackson or the Prisoner Wine Company, yeah, you're going to pay attention to what's going on and start to um, start to isolate trends and start to move back towards, you know, start to move towards what the consumer is demanding. And that may shift and it it probably will. I mean, we've seen stylistic shifts almost every decade for the last four to five in Napa Valley. You can really see a change between the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s um, based on what the consumer wanted and based on um, some of the uh, the winemaking techniques that were around at that time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking to just the alcohol levels, you mentioned Tony, uh, Tony and I was in a wine shop buying some wine recently. And the first thing I do is, is look for the alcohol. Now, <laughs> That's also a really controversial thing, and I've yeah. been kind of yelled at for, for a few people on that. But if, it, <laughs> if it's, I understand that different wines are labeled differently, and the alcohol it might not be the, the proper amount. And I've, I've also tasted wines with a high alcohol where you don't even taste taste it. So mm-hmm. with that all being said, I couldn't find the ABV percentage on the bottle. Yeah. So I did a little of research, and I, I found it really interesting how. He's been making wine for so long that back in the day, um, some, whatever the law is, it was yep. between 7 and 14% uh, table wine where you didn't have to put the alcohol on the bottle. So I, I thought that was really cool and interesting. Yeah, he's grandfathered in. Actually, Diamond Creek was grandfathered in for a while, too. 
Uh, and they were actually grandfathered in uh, with the fraction. So, so whatever you started with, so like, oh, wow. so sometimes you'll see like 13.5, but then there's some wineries that are grandfathered in that like have to keep um, the 13 and three quarters. Like they can't change it without a full TCB label approval again. Um, but yeah, Tongyi, yeah, you'll never see the alcohol in a Tongyi bottle unless they change their labels. That's interesting. The other th- quick thing I wanted to mention was, you know, we talked about Parker and as you mentioned, you've had the opportunity to be involved in winemaking, even though you, that's not your, uh, what you're doing now and kind of your focus. But, um, I thought it was really interesting that Robert Parker, he, you know, saw that as a critique of him of winemakers saying, well, you don't make wine, you're just a critic. So with his involvement in Beauforest, which makes amazing Pinot up in Oregon. It's just uh, another cool, interesting fact, not being the the full winemaker there, but being involved in understanding that process, I thought was really cool. Yeah. You know, I think um, Robert Parker is a great example of, of a Renaissance man. He was somebody that uh, I think he was a lawyer before he got into, into being a wine critic. And I think he almost got into it by accident, but, um, but yeah, I, I respect him a lot. I, I respect what he did for industry. I've said many times that he is the reason that I have a job. He's the reason that Americans care about wine. He gave all of us uh, a door to open and walk through um, with the scoring system. And and whether or not that has been a good thing or a bad thing, I think remains to be seen. But it is an important thing and one that we we have him to thank for. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Now, let's move on to the last segment here, which is just talking a little bit about food. And this show is about food and wine. So yes, and I love want food. to be able to cover both. So yeah, you know, a lot of people get into wine with finding really interesting pairings or maybe cooking at home and, and really complimenting the food that they're cooking and, and enhancing it. But let's talk a little bit about your favorites, starting with the pairing tacos with cider, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you have to, we have to talk about what kind of tacos. There's a lot of different tacos out there, right? So I think the one that you're talking about is the um, Suadero taco from the Tacos Garcia truck in Yonville. Um, So I love that pairing because I think, you know, those, they're a little bit spicy. Um, So you want something that has just a touch of sweetness to maybe offset that. Um, A wine has always felt too heavy and too um, overpowering, unless it's like a vino verde for uh, the suadero taco from there. And so I love cider because it's, it's got a little spritz and you, I always feel like with taco, you want something spritzy, like you, like a soda. It's just so like, there is nothing better than like a, like a grapefruit or like a Mexican Coke or something like that with a, like a spicy taco. And so to me, cider is like a really great balance between a wine and a soda. You've got the spritziness of the cider, the apple just sort of like play up some of the fruitiness of the, of like the lemon and the lime. And then you also have like, a, sometimes the ciders have a little bit of residual sugar, which, which tempers the, uh, the spice in the taco. Yeah, no. And I probably should have started with just your philosophy on pairing food and wine and, and how you kind of look at it, any rules of thumb or generalizations that you make. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not, uh, they're not, they're not mine. They are um, sort of the, the, <laughs> the, you know, they're not proprietary. Um, yeah. I mean, you right. have your, your basic salt, fat, acid, heat, right. And you, when mm-hmm. you're pairing something, you know, you've got to think about, do I want to place something up or do I want to put something in check when it comes to like 
something like fat, right? Fat generally wants to be tempered. It generally wants to be cut with something. And so fat and acid love each other because they they make you salivate together. You eat something fatty, you put something uh, something acidic with it, it cuts it, and then it leaves your pal- palate feeling fresh to come at it again. Um, heat loves sweet. It loves um, anything that's got a little bit of sweetness and it's going to temper it down. If you wanted to intensify it, you would intensify it with something tannic, something a little salty, um, and that would play up the heat a little bit, but sweet brings it down. And then if you're eating something sweet, sweet has to be matched to the sweet. Like you can't really, I mean, you can, but this is why like chocolate and Cabernet are not, are this, I, this, everyone's going to like jump out of there and say, what do you mean? Chocolate and Cabernet are actually not the best pairing in the world. At least for me, I don't love what it does. And the reason for that is because, uh, well, two things, tannin um, is one of them, but the real reason is because sweet loves sweet. So you need something uh, of equal or greater sweetness to put against the food that is sweet. So if you've got a panna cotta, you're going to want to make sure that you're wine that you're pairing with it is as sweet as that panna cotta or sweeter. You don't want it less sweet unless you want that panna cotta to taste like a steak. Um, so, you know, I, and I say that jokingly, but, uh, it can really, the reason you're eating dessert is because you want something sweet. So you, you naturally maybe want to play up those elements a little bit and you can play around with different flavor profiles to, um, ensure that that, you know, if that's a, a, a tropical fruit panna cotta, then maybe you're going to want something like a sauterne or something like a tokai that's going to play up the citrus of that a little bit more. Yeah. And you mentioned the acidity. Um, I often hear natural winemakers talk about the reason that their wine pairs better with food is the higher acidity levels. Let's, what do you think about that in general? And is that is that really true? Or is I think that it's a blanket generalization. That... <laughs> I think like anything, like you know that I, I'm not. I'm is never going to. Sorry, sorry to cut you off real fast. But yeah, yeah, is that something you hear from them, or is that just something that I've something that I've heard, or is that something that's out being put out there? Is that is that the messaging? Um. Yeah. Again, like I, I. I don't want to blanket stereotype a natural winemaker. I think there's a lot of really great ones out there, but they have gotten a bad rap in the past few years for making exaggerated, ridiculous blanket statements like my natural wine has higher acid, therefore it goes better with food. Like that's bullshit. Um, that makes absolutely no sense. Not all food wants acid. Yes, does a lot of food want acid? Absolutely. But your gross ass mission grape, high acid, empty ass wine is not necessarily going to be delicious just because it's got high acid with the salad that I'm having with lobster. Like that will be disgusting. So yeah, I mean, and I know like there's probably a sense of like tone in my voice right now where I'm just like, like a little angry, but I get, I don't get angry at them. I get angry at the fact that, that we put these blanket statements on things that people take and they pull and they see it. And, you know, there are little sound bites that get reverberated and, echo- and, and echoed throughout not just the wine community, but the consumer community. And it just continues to perpetuate the myths that exist in wine. And that's what furiates me that that these, you know, these things escape our community and they get lost in translation. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got consumers saying like, well, I only want natural wine because it pairs better with food. And you're like, what the hell? No, like that's not that's not your fault. It's not the consumer's fault. Some said that and somehow whisper down the lane happened. And now like 
now we're talking about natural wines being higher in acid. It just, it's not the case. Um, and so that's what frustrates me because it confuses the consumer and there's already enough confusion around wine when it comes to the consumer that it, it only exacerbates the problem. So that's where my frustrations really lie, not with, um, not for any other reason than it, it just, um, I want more people to drink wine and I want them to do it regularly. And it, it hinders that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think the lesson here is getting the right pairing and getting the right match. As you mentioned, the salt, fat, acid, heat, the matching sweetness, and there's all types of guides online and you produce so much great content. But sometimes I hear the critiques about the, the 1990s cabs and, you know, the, the critique is, okay, well, I'm not going to drink it with, as you mentioned, maybe a, some white fish or a salad or something, but mm-hmm. it, you want to have it with a big uh, ribeye steak or something like that, kind of like a steakhouse wine. Um, yeah. And and then when, when you go to the other side, okay, you're, you're drinking maybe something with a little more acid in it, something that's a little lower ABV, and that might pair well with, with fish or something else. But it's, I think both sides have to kind of come together and see, you know, there's, there's different wines for different type of meals, and you're not going to I think maybe the critique was is our our grandpa or you know your grandfather out there listeners were were drinking the the 1990s cabs with every right. <laughs> every dish that For they sure. made. So I think that's maybe where we we're trying to evolve this and to saying okay, I've even heard it talked about that uh, cuisines and dishes have evolved where you know we're we're eating lighter or maybe eating with fresher ingredients and I think that is also true and and pairing wines with kind of modern, more modern styles of eating, more healthy styles makes sense. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to have a steak once in a while with a, with a huge cab that's delicious. But, you know, seeing that evolve, I think is interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's pairing food and wine is actually something that most people are equipped to do. They just don't realize it. And so if you're someone that enjoys being in the kitchen, if you know that in order to get, um, a little richness out of your sauce, you need to add butter, then like you're going to know the principles of pairing food and wine. It's the same thing as when you're putting ingredients together in a dish, right? It's the same thing as, as what happens in a kitchen. It's understanding how flavors are going to either marry with each other or going to contrast with each other. And, and, you know, sometimes you can have like really super simple things that you just threw together and you're like, oh, whatever, it'll taste fine. And wine's the same thing, right? Like sometimes you're having a salad and you've got a red wine open, Uh, it's just knowing that like, maybe it's not the best pairing, but like, is it delicious in this moment? Yes, absolutely. Could I have done better and like played up the cucumber flavor? Yeah, maybe I should have grabbed the Gruner, but that's fine. And I think, you know, if anything, these, these past few weeks have taught me that being at home, experimenting with things, you know, cooking meals and then finding the right wine to pair with it, um, what it's taught me is that your cellar needs to be, or your wine fridge or cabinet or whatever, however you store your wine, um, just like let it be diverse and play around with things and and allow yourself the adventure because it's it's really fun and it's really exciting and like when things really work it starts to click for you and it's going to click more for you if you play around with different things versus just trying to pair the same thing over and over yeah and let's talk about in closing here some of your content and the next phase of uh, where you're taking your career. <laughs> well, um, for the first time in about a decade, I am not working in a restaurant, which is wild. Um, the transition really happened pre-COVID, although the timing was in some ways really wonderful and in some ways, you know, shocking and weird. Um, 
but I, you know, I've spent the last uh, several years of, of my life as a sommelier on the floor at press. And then before that in New York and, through all of that, I had always created content. I got really into creating content when I was out here in Napa. Um, and and it got to a point where that really became the primary focus of my life. And I needed to um, I needed to pick a team. Like I needed to decide whether or not I was going to continue to be on the floor. And to do that properly, I was going to have to sacrifice the other side of my life. Or if it was time to, you know, retire from the floor and see what the content side of things had to offer. And so for me, I felt like I could, I would have more longevity and I felt like I could talk to more people and do more of what I loved by, by making more content. And so um, really the next chapter of my life, or at least in the the short interim, because I really haven't had time to think about it since I left press and uh, a pandemic hit. Um, what I'm doing right now is continuing to create create content, not only for my Instagram and YouTube channel, but also to help wineries create content. So um, helping to promote their products via videos. Um, I only work with brands and wines that I truly believe in. Most of the brands that I'm working with are wineries that I've you know, known for years um, without, you know, receiving any sort of uh, financial um, incentivization. Um, and then I also, you know, do a lot for a company called Wine Access, which is some another uh, company that I've been working with for a long time, um, creating content. And we are in the midst of launching a podcast together because uh, one of the things that I love about Wine Access is they, they love not only what wine is, but what it can do, which is bring people together from all walks of life, all different career paths, um, all different levels of drinking. You know, wine is really the great unifier in so many ways. And whether that brings you together for, a, a, you know, a night out by the fireplace or it begins, brings you together for a meal or virtually over a, you know, Zoom session, um, it is often the the tangible item that that unifies us. And so we're creating a podcast that really helps to highlight that. So we are for the first time doing a podcast about wine with no wine people. So no sommeliers, no winemakers, no um, importers. I mean, maybe we will down the line, but for the time being, we are talking to people outside of the industry who are really wonderful in their chosen career paths. So professional basketball players, um, NFL players, uh, you know, great musicians, songwriters, comedians, um, you know, people that other people can identify with who also really enjoy wine. Um, you know, maybe they're collectors already, maybe they're just getting into it, whatever the situation is, we're, we're bringing them together with us. I'm hosting it. Um, and we're just talking about their life, their experiences with wine, what they're enjoying and helping to, talk about wine and maybe educate about wine in a way that is more in a, uh, in a, in a storytelling capacity and an organic way um, than me just getting up there and lecturing and, and telling you how to properly decant your wine and, and why you need to pair your, uh, your sweet panna cotta with a sweet dessert wine. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting concept, actually. <laughs> I think that's something that's really going to resonate with people and, and get some education, but also just that entertainment value and be able to connect with someone else who might be like them. Maybe they're they're obviously not just maybe, they're working in another career, probably a lot of the future listeners not in the wine business, and they're 
who knows what career they're in, and maybe they'll be able to relate to some of these people. Um, I think that's really cool. Exactly. Uh, we're going to uh, link all your videos, or sorry, not all your videos, a few, <laughs> your a, videos uh, a few of your videos here in the show notes and how listeners can find you here. Um, but I know most people have uh, seen the videos. And if you haven't, this will be a great introduction to you and then in the future brand and the podcast you're building. So we uh, really appreciate you coming on. And uh, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, to hear who you've got on your podcast. I, you know, I love a good wine podcast. Um, so I, I can deep dive and get geeky on uh, on some of these. So thank you for having me be a part of it. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.